Welcome to another Lunch and Learn for Her Many Voices Foundation. So excited to be here today uh, with Jessica Sue and Alicia Fall. Good to see you, Myrna. Good to see you, Jess. Thank you for coming on the show today. Really great to see you, Alicia. And thank you, Myrna. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we are going to really dive into Haiti this time. And, you know, Alicia, I don't know if you'd want to give a very short little intro to how Her Many Voices uh, got involved with Haiti. I know that's where you met Jessica years ago. But can you kind of bring Haiti in for us? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2010, January 2010, uh, Haiti had a massive earthquake, as most people know. And um, in the process of doing some delivery of services, of resources down there, I was introduced to Tama Kantav, who is the founder of Help Haiti, and, um, and fell in love with everything that she was doing and decided to go down to, to Haiti. I met her there a few weeks after the quake. And so I started getting these introductions of the people in the community. And um, a little fast forward, through the Wind Farm Ecological Nature Reserve in Kenskov, Haiti, um, who we've been partnering with since close to 2010. I met Jess at the farm through, uh, through Melissa Day and, and uh, Jane Wynn. And Jess- Jessica and I have had some, some good down the rabbit hole, deep conversations over the years. We've spent a fair amount of time together. And I just, I love the work that you do, Jess, and, uh, and the heart and the spirit that you have for the people. Um, and you've been there for what, 20 years now? About 20 years, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Lisa, yeah. that means so much. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. Um, I'm grateful for you as a colleague and a friend. And yes, we have gone down that rabbit hole quite a few times. <laughs> we have. And Myrna, just so you know, I refer to Jess, I'll probably embarrass her now, but she is like the Lara Croft to me as a Haiti. On her motorcycle and she gets the job done, whatever it is. She sat there with people getting the work done. Um, that is amazing. I love that yeah. visualization. It's well, the way people know me because the braid out my helmet. That's like my recognizable <laughs> trait, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I know um, I have you, you know, you're a post-colonial anthropologist and that is amazing. And also a solidarity activist. I'd love for you to tell us more about what that means to you. And Alicia, maybe stick around for this part, right? And jump in. Oh, well. Um, so... I mean, I can talk a little bit about how I started my relationship with Haiti. Um, So I was a Peace Corps volunteer many, many years ago, um, 2002, I think it would be. And it was, um, I always say that Haiti made me more human. I learned so much being here. Um, I'm, you know, I'm I'm Chinese American. My parents were born in China, raised in Taiwan. I was born in the U.S. And... um, You know, I mean, a lot of what I understand growing up in the U.S. is, you know, about my individual rights, my individual freedom. And what I learned being in Haiti, in the countryside, is that this notion of collective responsibility, the idea that we are members of a society and we're responsible to each other, which 
um, I think is such an aspect of being human that is so important that is also, you know, part of the traditions that were passed on to us from indigenous peoples, from the cultures that like I'm, I'm from as well. And so in a lot of ways, it brought me back down to my roots. It also made me much more human. Um, and it's funny, I actually left after two years because what I saw was a lot of the after effects of international interventions, different projects, and I actually swore I'd never go back again. So that lasted about a year. And then I was back in Haiti. <laughs> and it drove me to grad school, which is what I studied, post-colonial anthropology. And um, the post-colonial anthropology, anthropology is, is something that I am, like I'm doing research right now, but it's not usually what I'm doing in Haiti. What it is is a framework for me to understand the different structures that inform what a society or what a culture looks like. And for a place like Haiti that was colonized, there's the understanding that the post the colonial affects what is happening now and plays an important role in shaping what is present now. Um, and I don't say activist because I always believe it's going to be a Haitian solution, and that's what I support always. So that's why I say solidarity activist. Um, maybe I'll stop there for that. <laughs> I'm so curious. Was your Peace Corps experience in Haiti? It was. It was in the far end of the island in a. Um, in the Grandance department, the southwestmost point. And it's where I spent most of my time for like maybe about 15 years. And then I moved to Port-au-Prince about six years ago. Okay, wow. Great. Well, next I want to share more about wind farms um, in Haiti. And so um, if you guys want to talk about that a little bit, and then I know in a little bit we have a beautiful video to share. Lisa, well, yeah, like I said, you know, this is this is the tie-in between us uh, through Wind Farm Ecological Nature Reserve. They are um, they are in Kenskov. They're about, I believe, it's around 30 acres in a 400-acre area that is considered a preserve. And um, thank you to the work that Jane Wynn and her family have been doing for many, many years now. Um, Things like birds are returning, butterflies are returning, insects are returning in this area. You know, as many people know, Haiti is a deforested country. So the fact that we have this reserve that is there to honor the earth and return what we have stolen along the way and educate people on how we are connected to mother and, um, and how we can live and work together, right? So they've been doing this work for, I believe, what, Jess, it's about 70 years now that Wind Farm has been in existence. I think it's, it was, yeah, I think we're at about 70 years, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Jane Wynn's father, uh, Victor Wynn, who started this. And, um, and the family have just been taking on over these years, over these generations, educating people. And it's not just educating the, the Haitian, the local Haitian community. They are there as an international hold for people. Um, they really have have led the way in many many areas on how how we should be living with mother. Right? Were they the first organization, Alicia, that um, connected you to the people of Haiti to really know where to start your work there? Well, it was a combination of things. We were actually doing work in Trushushu. Uh, Haiti, which is um, what? How many miles away? It takes a few hours to get there from from Wind Farm. I'll just say that you know, depending on the roads. When we first started, there were no roads to get up there. 
Um, but now mm -hmm. things have been paved out. But that's where we have our, um, our uh, primary school, uh, St. Alphonse de Cadet, as well as we, we work with six different women's organizations, businesses. And um, as a matter of fact, Jane Wynn and those at Wynn Farm have been providing trainings for them, for these ladies over the years. And that can be everything from making uh, paper briquettes as opposed to using coal, which is, as we know, really bad for, for the environment and our personal environment. Um, all the way from that to how do you run a business? We have some of these women uh, live right on the beachfront. And, you know, for this period of time, they've been able to offer tourism in a beautiful, beautiful location on, on the beach. Um, so that's been going on for a number of years. Certainly, uh, we've, we've learned so much working with Wind Farm. We really have. Um, we, we really we really have. And so it sprouts and, and it provides a lot of connections with us globally. And, um, and at this point, what we've been doing is reintroducing hemp into the Haitian community. And Wind Farm has been crucial in that introduction. And then Jessica, how did your work with Wind Farm begin? So I've known the family, oh, I, I met Melissa on a boat on the far end of the island in 2003, um, and at the time I didn't know about Wind Farm unless I'd left Haiti for a little while and come back. And I started to learn about the work and I reconnected with Jane and Melissa. And um, my work probably started about six or seven years ago. Um, the farm, the reserve, they were starting to get threats. People were encroaching on the land, trying to take pieces of it. And so um, I started to work with them on protecting um, the reserve, um, trying to do different forms of advocacy, which, um, you know, there's a lot of different efforts that came together that eventually created a larger park, which is Park Sourcesite, and Wind Farm is a part of it. Um, but as Elisa was saying, this started about 70 years ago. Um, Victor Wynn, Jane's father, started buying parcels of land to protect, and what he did was he was in Carrefour following the watershed, trying to protect the watershed. And what is really important about this piece of land in Kenskoff on Montranchant is it's the birthplace of three major rivers, which supplies water for about 30% of the population. Mm. So this, this mountaintop is absolutely crucial to the future of Haiti's, you know, um, biodiversity, to its population, to so many different things, you know. So, yeah, and I, I think... I think I'm just considered a friend of the farm, the friend of the reserve. They're like family to me, so. <laughs> That's great. Is this a good yeah. time for the video? I think it's a perfect time for the video. Yeah. Great. Yon espace pour montrer cultivate zone nan, technique, pour permettre yon fait jardin pendant yon protéger ni la nati, ni te yon contre érosion. Jounen jodi ya, 62 l'année après, nou pa ka konte kombien cultivate, jen, ak elev l'ekol, ki bénéficie formation ak information nan rezerve ekologik win fab. 
est-ce que vous connaissez que grâce à travail, préservation sol, wind farm a fait depuis plus passé 60 années, toute l'eau la pluie qui tombait sous terre wind farm non, pas perdu à fait érosion. Mais river conserver pour servir moun kesof. Depuis plus passé 15 années, yon série moun malhonnête a cherché mettre main sous terre réserve là. Yon fait toute qualité mauvais acte pour chercher mettre la famille wind sous propre terre Jodia, la famille Win a lancé un appel par tout le monde conséquent qui comprend le travail là et qui croit en protection de la nature d'Haïti. L'État haïtien commence à faire réponse et nous dit merci pour ça. Il faut que nous continuions à agir, il faut que l'État continue à accompagner les citoyens. La cause ça, ce n'est pas seulement la cause de la famille Win, c'est la cause Haïti avec chaque grain haïtien. Visitez winfarm.org. I'm smiling because that's the first time I've I've seen that version of the the video. Jeff, have you seen that one? Mm-hmm, I have. Okay, okay. I'm used to the version where Melissa Day is speaking through it. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I had forgotten about that video. That would have been a good one as well. Yeah. You know, Myrna Jessica had mentioned you know, about security um, and and the violence that happens in Haiti and the security issues that Wind Farm has been going through. And that really is where our tie is right now. Um, instead of our monies going so much to training for women and children at the farm, we are actually helping to provide security um, with the assistance of, of a couple of donors. And to me, it's it's a sad place to be, you know, where your your focus, your monies, your energies are going to hire big men with big guns, you know, to protect the people in the land. But that's where we're at at this point. And um, I am grateful that we have been given some support, but I would certainly say that we need as much support as we possibly can get from the community to make sure that we financially have the security team that's needed to protect the reserve as well as the people. Well, that's important. Without that, you can't do right. And there's your your dog. We can't. You can't do the work without that security. So it's like a it's like a foundational piece. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, there's the stories of Jane Wynn and um, Jane now. Sorry, Jane, but Jane is in her 70s at this point. But Jane has literally put her body out in front of the bulldozers. That, you know, you cannot go any further. You have to take me in order to take my land. Wow. Yeah. Can I just add one other thing to this? Um, I think the health of a soil is a reflection of the health of a society. Um, and part of the reason why this work is so important, although it is, I mean, it's heartbreaking that we are securing, you know, the, the reserve right now. But the reason why it's so important to do that is because the wind farm is trying to heal the land, which in turn is parallel to the healing of what's happening here. And I'm sure people have heard what's going on here. And so this reserve, this larger park is crucial to the future of Haiti. 
you gave us a little teaser there and I don't know how much people do know. Can you give us like a, just a quick snapshot of what's really happening there? We don't need to dive too much into politics and all that, but as much as you can share, there probably are a few people listening who aren't aware. Um, sure. I mean, I think, I think we can't talk about the present without talking about the past. Um, Haiti is a post-colonial nation. It's the first free, people call it the first free black Republic in the Western hemisphere. Um, that freedom was gained by a slave revolution in 1804. Mm. Um, and essentially what's happened is, um, I mean, my analysis of it is that Haiti's been paying for their freedom since that point. And so if we fast forward to today, we're in a, a situation of extreme insecurity. Um, when you talk to people, people are afraid to leave their houses. Um, well, people experience insecurity very differently depending where they are and what sort of class status they are. Um, so, but across the board, everyone does not circulate very much, does not move around, tries to limit how they move around right now because kidnappings are pervasive. There are killings that are happening. Um, if you're in a marginalized neighborhood, that's even more intense because they're trying to moon over armed groups that are, are largely responsible for what's happening now. Um, actually, I wouldn't actually say they're the ones responsible. It, it's been the armed groups are a production of the state. The state historically has supported these groups to do some of their dirty work, whether it's political opposition, neighborhoods, control of elections, these things, and also the private sector. And so in a lot of ways, these people that are armed groups now are victims of that. And what people are saying is that the politicians, the state, the opposition um, have lost control. So the violence has become much more pervasive. So that's, that's part of the situation. Layered with it is also, the other aspect that's also created is this constant um, decline of the socioeconomic conditions. You know, a state that hasn't cared about its people. It's a very centralized state, but when you have a post-colonial state, the state was not born to take care of the majority of the population. Um, and we were just talking about this, Mirna, before the book you mentioned by Robert Faton, The Predatory Republic. There's also another book by Michelle Rolf Truyo which is called State Against Nation. And so these are aspects of its history, a post-colonial state that has largely exploited its population um, or ignored it. That combination has left it more and more impoverished. And I always say Haiti is too rich for it to be poor. I mean, if you ever come here, you know it's a gorgeous place with so many different resources. And it's been impoverished. It's, you know, uh, the countryside has become much more desolate. People are struggling in ways that they never have, you know, and... Um, the youth are feeling largely lost. They're not supported by the state. You know, there is, um, a lot of them are in situations where they can't eat every day. And so, you know, recently I've actually been doing some research around the insecurity and a lot of them are telling me like, you know, what would you do if you hadn't eaten in many days? There, it changes your your judgment of things. What do you, what would you do? I'm like, I have no idea. I've never been in that experience. I've never had that experience, you know? Um, but it takes money, it takes resources, and it takes time to go to school, and then jobs are really limited. And so a lot of folks are choosing this other lifestyle to be able to provide for themselves and their families. And so there's a lot of different dynamics that are happening. Also last year, we know about the assassination of President Jovenel Moise. In August, there was an earthquake that was followed the next day by a hurricane, and then there is extensive flooding that's up in the north. So we have issues of climate change and also climate vulnerability, which 
are directly tied to the fact that it's an island nation that's politically and socioeconomically vulnerable. So, yeah, that's that's a that's an overview. It's a lot. It's a lot for us to imagine. And you know, when you talk about, um, you were talking specifically about youth not eating for several days at a time, and I know that's true for not just the youth um, there, and that it. And I'm, I'm so grateful I've not been in that position either. And this ties back to our talk we had actually last month with Lisa um, at Neurosculpting Institute, because those types of things, uh, that kind of stress, and then the mental stress and then the physical stress on top of it, of not eating and having that pervasive hunger, that affects your judgment, it affects our brain, it affects everything, right? So it's really no wonder that you know, that people are struggling so much because I don't think we think that often about how that affects our physical body, our mental health and everything. And it's, it's um, very difficult. You want to read this? Bonsoir. <laughs> so, um, it says, do you want me to translate Hello, everyone. Hello to all the, uh, people in the panel. I am Jacques-Emmanuel Saint Laurent, a collaborator locally with her many voices in Haiti. Um, I'm thanking you for this really lovely discussion. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for being here. <laughs> You're muted, Alicia. Come on, the fourth time's the charm. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> Emmanuel has been working with uh, her many voices um, over the last 10 years. And he, we met him, he was a student in Haiti. And over the years, he was trying to finish out his master's degree, but having issues for the very same reasons that Jess was talking about. And it took us almost 10 years, but we finally got him out of the country. And he is now finishing out his master's in Marseille. He's in France, and he'll be graduating in September. But he speaks to um, the power of youth and the devotion and the hope, because as Jess was talking about it, it's such a challenge for young people in this country at this point. You know, so I, I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for people like Emmanuel and his siblings. His brothers have been helping us out as well. He has a brother who's an agronomist who's been doing work with us as well as with uh, Wind Farm. And, um, and it makes a difference to know that people will go out, they get their education, they get that knowledge and they bring it back home because that is what's going to keep Haiti afloat. It's not so much that the outside world comes in and forces, this is what we think you need. Haitians already know what they need. Let's just support them and what they, what they can possibly do in life. And you know, that leads directly to something, Jessica, you've been talking about, which is the solution needs to come from the Haitians. They, they, they're capable, they, they, they need to be invested. Yeah, speak more to that. So can I just add one other thing to what Alicia was saying before I do that? Sure. Um, it's about 65% of the population that is under the age of 29 in Haiti. Mm -hmm. So it's the majority of the population. And this other figure I just heard, it's, don't quote me on the exact figure, but it's around 80% of college graduates in Haiti are leaving Haiti right now which is the highest number in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's, that's a, a sector of the population that absolutely needs to stay here for the future of this country. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I'm sorry, Myrna, your question was um, around a Haitian solution. Yeah, um, and, and how and to Alicia's point that he, you know, he and the others are coming back after they're educated. Yeah, and providing some of the solutions, and that's important. So I think what we see a lot of times, I mean, I'm from the U.S., and so when I see U.S. interventions, a lot of them are sort of in this way that multiple things, they feel sort of paternalistic. You know, it's like, we know what's best for you. Um, or a model is taken from somewhere else that is not adapted to the reality of, of Haiti. Um, and what, what seems to happen a lot of times, there is no true engagement, there's no dialogue, there's, there's not the, the work that needs to go into have transparency and like conversations and dialogue. And for me, one of the things that really, I mean, I think I've heard this quite a bit in, in, in the conversations I've been having is how do we um, how do we get to a place where the youth, what they want right now is in the foreground? How are they the how are they how do we incorporate the youth in Haiti into Haitian society? How do we make them unlost? You know, and these are the conversations that people are saying locally to me is that, you know, we're in a space where we don't have much direction. We don't have models. We don't have leaders to follow. You know, what does it mean to create a space where people are able to deal with, you know, the trauma, a place to breathe, but also a place to gather and a way to actually have this, you know, let me back up a little bit even more. When we talk about state against nation, the predatory public, Haiti has a broken social contract. Maybe the social contract was never forged. But part of it for me is, um, you know, when we talk about nation, it's actually the majority of the people here. Um, and so how do we actually engage in foreground the majority of the population? Because resources are controlled by a small sector of the private sector in the state. But what needs to happen really is this balance needs to shift and a contract needs to be built. And the only thing that I see happening that I hope happens is that a Haitian solution that is collectively, inclusively, participatively created. So that's that's the Haitian solution that I envision. And then you're working on the Community Guide for Humanitarian Aid, right? You're helping mm -hmm. communities learn how to work with NGOs that are coming in and that's pulling in the local Haitians in the communities and get and helping them get invested in that. Can you share about that as well? Sure. There's a there's a Haitian saying. It says "Lakai say Lakai." Home is home. Um, for me in Haiti, I live in Port-au-Prince right now, but my roots in Haiti <laughs> are in the far end of the island in this town called Abrico um, in the Grand Dance Department, which is where I have. An adopted Haitian mom, people I consider family. You know, I've been working with community leaders for years, and we watched processes happen while we were trying to intervene in different ways. And processes that were happening after the, after Hurricane Matthew in 2016, the the Category Four Five hurricane that devastated the area. Um, we learned a lot from it collectively, and so we continued to brainstorm together. And at some point, one of the thoughts was, you know. There's a lot of intellectuals, activists, people in civil society that say NGOs are actually a parallel state or a replacement of the state here. And so the thought is, you know, civic education is usually about the functionality of the state for citizens, but nobody knows anything about the humanitarian system. It's sort of evasive. So 
why don't we work on the process of creating transparency so communities can understand what's happening with the system and then they can determine how they want to negotiate the system. So that's part of the guide. The second part, I mean, so humanitarian organizations, so, okay, humanitarian coordination is something that's much more consolidated than the other aspects of NGO interventions like development. But what's in this guide is a mapping of the humanitarian system. You know, in 2016, there was the World Humanitarian Summit, which um, manifested the grand bargain, which is conversations with a lot of these different institutions that are involved in humanitarian aid, and they make commitments to do this work better. So that's a part of the guide, showing the communities what commitments these organizations have made, um, what questions to ask, what are the backgrounds of different NGOs that have been present in their in their in their commune in their communities and um, so it's the tools to maneuver this system as if it's civic education as if we're talking about the state and political systems right so that's the first part and the second part is what we preface as four NGOs that are coming in that want to do the right thing by the community and it's literally written by the community it's it's or you know some of it is conversations the community has had about NGOs, but they they map their community. They ask them like step by step. This is how you approach us. This is what we want. This is what we are demanding of you. And um, that's that's essentially the guide right now. It's in draft form. But um, you know, some of the conversations the community is like are like um, this means that we're mobilizing before these things happen. This means that we're strengthening civil society. You know, like we have incidences under Hurricane Matthew where the mayor was. Politics in the countryside is similar to politics in Port-au-Prince, where somebody gets voted in and has to take care of his people. So we have incidences where that happens. You know, there's this um, patron system that happens with humanitarian aid. And so as we were talking to the community, some of the things they're saying is like, how do we get the mayor to actually negotiate with NGOs? And as they're talking and mobilizing and brainstorming together and collectivizing their thoughts, they started saying, like, what does it look like? Not if they can negotiate on behalf, but actually if we could put in a mayor that actually cares about us. Huge shift. So very, very exciting. Um, but, yeah, that's that's part of it. That's great. That uh, sounds like a, an important project. You know, it's something tangible you're doing on the ground that's really making a difference. I have a question for Alicia at this point. Um, you know, when you say some people consider NGOs are a replacement for the state. How does that strike you, Alicia, as one of those NGOs that's there doing the work? I agree. As soon as you said it, Jess, I was smiling because I absolutely agree with it. You know, I mean, we have to be really careful because NGOs, they, they can have a tremendous amount of power coming into a community. And we have a tendency of wanting to shape things the way we feel they need to be as opposed to let's sit back and listen to the community's needs. You know, I don't want to impose anything that I believe that is necessary on a, on, on a community or a people. Um, and NGOs, we, we tend to be more of a, our own little sovereign state and believe that we can move in and, and provide services and, and intent um, in the same way that other governments do. So you have to be very careful. There's a fine line there. And I'm, I'm sure you're very aware of that, where that line is. You're so experienced with this and 
you know, it's, it's really incredible. I don't want to forget just to have you, if you'd like to still read your love letter to Haiti. Okay. So this, um, a little background, this is, I guess, the reason why I got invited to this talk today was that Alicia and I were going down one of our rabbit holes and, um, she had said something that made me think of a line that had written in this love letter, actually the framing of it. And I shared it with her. It's, it's edited because it's supposed to be published in the next month or so, but um, it should only take about like three or four minutes. It's like a page and a half or so. I would love it. So let's see. Um, I'll read the back. So it starts with a quote. It says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, and let us work together. And that's by Lila Watson, an indigenous Australian activist. Um, okay, let me just shrink this so I can read this a little bit better. Okay, so I started this piece as a journal entry that I didn't intend to share with a larger audience. Um, it poured out as a stream of consciousness. I just heard about the killings in Delma 32 and the murders of activists Antoinette and Nettie Duclair and journalist Diego Charles. It was after the killing of Evelyn Sincere and the latest wave of massacres in poor urban neighborhoods that had been happening since August 2020. As insecurity mounted, foreigners left, and many friends asked if I would leave too. I asked myself, what is my role if I stay or go? What does it mean to be physically present as a solidarity activist in these times? It wasn't the first time I'd asked myself these questions, but now it felt more significant. A friend from City Soleil told me that being together was a chance to breathe, collectively hope, be inspired and push for change. He said, quote, for someone who always has the choice to leave, but stays with us through these times, it shows hope still exists for our country. So those events and that conversation moved me to write what I'm calling a love letter to Haiti. Um, let me just expand this before I start so I can read this better. <laughs> Sorry. So, Shaiti, a few months ago, a friend said to me, Haiti deserves so much. My response was, Haiti deserves everything. She understood with a nod and deep sigh. It's been almost 20 years since I stepped my unbound feet on this land, first as Peace Corps volunteer, then anthropologist and solidarity activist. I'm the US-born daughter of parents who were born in China and fled to Taiwan. My father's mother, my grandmother, had her feet bound at a young age, breaking her bones and excruciatingly reshaping her feet to fit into my shoe, fit into tiny shoes, excuse me. Perceived as a sign of beauty and refinement, it made every step agonizing and kept her bound to the domestic space. That same cloth bound her spirit too. The woman I called Nai Nai, my paternal grandmother has transitioned and is among the ancestors now. I know we are the ones our ancestors, like my grandmother, believed with birth what seemed impossible as they imagined boundless freedom, unbound feet, unbound bodies, minds and spirits. To paraphrase June Jordan's poem for South African women protesting apartheid, we are the ones we've been waiting for. After a series of devastating events in 2021, the Haitian popular sector demanded that the world respond with solidarity, not charity. As a US passport holding citizen and non-black person of color, standing in solidarity with black people everywhere, not just in the US is an obligation if I too wish to be free. I understand that systems of oppression cause suffering for everyone. As an Asian American, 
I will not be used. And this is this is in reference to an article written by um, her last name is Matsuda. So it says, as an Asian American, I will not be used to oppress others, nor allow the suffering of those who came before me to be rendered invisible. Our freedom is intertwined. Black lives must matter everywhere. This is where you come in, Haiti. If the descendants of those once enslaved people who broke their shackles in 1804 were to become truly free from imperialism and white supremacy, systemic forms of global racism would crumble. Black people everywhere would be free. We would all be free. Today, some of those descendants of the originators of black liberation and abolition still live in the countryside working the land. Others have migrated to the cities, especially Port-au-Prince to Cheche La Vie, searching for livelihoods. They've landed in poor urban neighborhoods like City Soleil, Martisson, Grand Ravine, La Saline, Delmadon, Saint-Martin. In the countryside, many are hungry. The post-colonial state only cares about the countryside when it wants to exploit its resources and communities. Beyond that, it is a story of neglect. In the poor neighborhoods of the city, many are hungry too. They live with violence and insecurity every day. Historically, the state had a monopoly on violence. Today, it seems ever-present and free-floating. In the era of quote-unquote gangs, some kill their neighbors and fellow citizens. Self-annihilation in the service of greed, profit, and perhaps in order to access some resources, a little power and a little respect. Many of the perpetrators of physical violence are also everyday victims of an oppressive system of structural violence. As a young child, I heard Bob Marley sing, release yourself from mental slavery. slavery. <laughs> I learned the words by heart, but never really knew what they meant. I, like so many others, did not recognize how capitalism binds us how it forces us or even convinces us to value profit over people. I didn't recognize or understand how oppression is internalized. What I did know was that those words spoke of freedom I deeply desired. I also know that freedom is not singular or a final thing, but an ongoing practice rooted in the practice of love that as bell hooks would say is a verb, not a noun. Much of my own under much of my own uneducation, my unlearning and practices of freedom, collective freedom, have been shaped by time and experiences here with you, Haiti. Your people have been mentors, professors, inspiration for my commitment to be in solidarity, to dream of collective liberation. Our liberation is intertwined. For this and so much, I'm eternally grateful. Okay, so a little bit more than one page. There's two more paragraphs. The spirit of freedom lives in this powerful land. After your independence from France, you welcomed anyone who was unfree. African-Americans fleeing slavery, Jews fleeing the Holocaust to live in freedom. You not only welcomed the unfree, but fought side by side with others who were fighting for their own freedom in other lands. Your children who achieved freedom in 1804 imagined a land of collective liberation rooted in practices such as Kombit, such as the Laku. Even as people come to the cities to Cheche La Vie in search of livelihoods, they retain traditions of mutual aid and obligation, even as those practices transform. Yet, this counter-memory is increasingly silenced. Haiti, for over two centuries, your people resisted the plantation system that ex exploited their bodies and labor, a system of individualism and consumerism that disregards nature and human interconnectedness to the land and its creatures, and forces forgetting of the sacred. This interconnectedness is one of the most important and valuable lessons I've learned from you. Haiti is true that you've never been forgiven for your revolution. It is true that the international community has never forgiven you for humiliating and defeating, defeating Napoleon's army. 
They will never stop making you pay for freeing yourselves. They will try to control you, calling you a failed state, ungovernable, poor rather than impoverished, undeveloped, violent, and unstable. Do not let them tell you who you are. The first Africans to reach your shores were violently kidnapped and stolen from many lands, but forged a collective language, culture, and society. They fought together to gain their freedom and offered it to unfree others. I want those specters to haunt the worlds. I want us collectively to call our ancestors' name, names, invoking memory and strength, honoring the sacred, imagining another world, as my Nainai did, dreaming of unbound possibilities. You are the birthplace of freedom and Black liberation. <sighs> I'm not done. I envision a future where Black people everywhere are free, and therefore we all will be free. It's, um, in Creole, Foclemont change. The world must change. In Haiti, who better to inspire another world? Let your spirit rise. Kembe fem pajem lake, which is a phrase that means hold tight, don't let go. I'm trying to compose myself here from the first paragraph. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing that, Jessica. Powerful, powerful words. Yeah, I can't not read it without getting a little, yeah. But, you know, I know we were talking about the dream. That's it. That's it. And this is all a part of that collective healing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, collective liberation is equal to, I mean, they're synonymous for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I believe we all need to listen to the call of our ancestors, too. That is a part of that healing as well. Um, with gratitude for what they experienced, what they went through before us in order for us to be here today and to do the work that we do. Um, we have, uh, they, they, we're standing on giants as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know. uh, yeah, that contrast between your grandmother with her bound feet, and um, I'd heard of that, um, and 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 your your life and your possibilities, right? And what you're actually doing, what you're doing, Alicia, you probably have a, a, a stories like that as well. I don't know if you do, but um, you know, we we just have here and now. We're so blessed and privileged to be living here now because we can do so much more than, than our ancestors could. Um, that was just one of the things. And it's just how difficult it must have been. Um, and now I, I get your point too, Jess. I'm not missing the point that all these people in Haiti are still struggling. There are still so many people who are, who are really, really struggling. And culturally, oh my gosh, that that people will never forgive them for breaking free. That is, God, that's really poignant and and difficult to to accept. And I'm sure it's true, right? Culturally, that's still there, um, and, and it's punishing them for being strong. Mm -hmm. it's the unspoken is, truth, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I know you mentioned Black Lives Matter. Jess, can you pull that in for us a little bit more as well? How you see that 
movement and, and have it, how it ties to Haiti? Yeah, I mean, what was happening in the states, I'm going to lose track of time in the last two, three years around Trayvon Mutt and all the state violence that we see through police killings, all the coverage of it, it, um, it it's also part of what brought me to write this love letter because I was thinking a lot about what that meant. And, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, I read this really beautiful piece that Black Lives Matter um, is not necessarily the same if you look in Harlem or Rwanda and, and not saying that one is, you know, worse than the other. It's not a competition about it, but it's different. It's very different. And I think one of the things um, that I was trying to mark in this love letter is that these efforts are not bound by these man-made boundaries, these human-made boundaries. Um, and that these efforts need to be in solidarity to each other, that we need to engage in these conversations. Because we can't talk about Black Lives Matter without talking about Haiti, the, the country that created abolition and Black, abolition and black liberation. Um, and if that's a part of the conversation, then it changes the dynamic. You know, um, racism is not something that just happens in the US. We are a superpower, so it impacts everyone. And I think we have to acknowledge what that means, our presence globally. Um, and so for me, the Black Lives Matter has to happen as like Black Lives Everywhere Matter. And we have to, that's the context that I, that I think about it in. That makes um, me, um, Alicia, did you want to respond? No, no, go ahead. That makes me um, think about um, the situation with all the deportation that's happening. And especially now, um, you mentioned to me as we were getting ready for the call, the number is now 16,000 people have been deported out of the U.S. and they're back in Haiti. And what is their life like now? What are they doing? What, you know, tell me more about that. Um, so since September 19th, the U.S. has been expelling people from the Texas-Mexico border, um, sometimes up to six flights a day. Um, and um, some of the work I've been doing, we've been working on advocacy. So I've been talking to a lot of people that have been expelled, returned to Haiti. Um, these aren't people that returned, left Haiti recently. The people that left after 2010 earthquake, that left after the hurricane, um, in very different situations that were also very, very hard. The majority of these people left because they couldn't find jobs. There's different levels of insecurity. Um, their families weren't eating. They couldn't go to school. So there's this term in Creole called cheche la vie, which is in search of livelihoods, you know. So people left in search of livelihoods. Like people would, families would sell pieces of land, collect money. Um, and uh, I, um, to send one person to Chile or Brazil. Um, and so this person would go to Chile, Brazil, um, set up a life there, you know, send money back. And somebody said to me, um, once somebody leaves Haiti, everyone that they leave behind starts to eat, starts to go to school, has more of their basic services met. So after July, there was a, there's a rumor that the borders in the U.S. opened up. Brazil is still tough. The 
the standard of living people were barely making enough to have ends meet. And so this is really appealing. And I think a lot of people believe, I mean, and it's true that you could make more money to support your families if you're in the U.S., whether you're in Chile or in Brazil. And so there is a rumor that there's an opening to cross into the border. So a lot of people started to make their way up that way. That was July of last year? Around July of last year, arriving when we saw people under the bridge in Del Rio in September, August, September. And so crossing through 10 to 11 countries through actually horrific conditions, being exploited, robbed, raped, killing, seeing dead bodies, people drowning, crossing rivers through forests. I mean, it's it's a really, the stories of this journey are, are, are horrific. Getting to Mexico, waiting for months in Tapachula, waiting for protocol papers to move around, then getting moved around, moving around, seeing if they can find work in Mexico. And then eventually crossing into the U.S. through different different areas um, and being picked up by immigration, being treated really poorly, very differently than other countries, people from other countries, not being told anything about being deported, not ask any questions. People who have a legitimate asylum cases are being denied that, not even ask if they have legitimate asylum, well, even asked if they're applying for asylum, which is a violation of international law. And um, being shackled, which, I mean, this image of handcuffs on your hand to your waist, to your feet, which is, I mean, horrific. Um, and it's reminiscent of histories that are in the U.S. and also in Haiti. And flown back to Haiti without being told, arriving in Haiti, and so they've also spent thousands of dollars on this journey, having to borrow money from their families that they were supporting for a while to get to the U.S. border, being returned to the situation of insecurity in terms of violence and uh, increases in armed groups, but also much more impoverished than they'd been when they left. And not really connected to the reality of the day-to-day -day here. So the majority are looking to leave as quickly as possible. Anyone that can find the means is trying to go as quickly as possible. And a lot of the kids of these families were born in Chile and Brazil, so they have Chilean or Brazilian passports. Um, and what we're talking about with the Black Lives Matter, one of the things, one of the efforts that we've been trying to do is really have people understand that immigration is a black issue as well. This is all intertwined. You know, and I think one of the things for me is that so much of the advocacy and so many of the efforts are siloed that if we were actually to come together, we'd be much more powerful. So. Yeah, that and that takes us right to the collective, the, the, the theme of collective healing and collective freedom. And and it's these are human rights. Uh, these are major human rights issues. Um, we only have we have about eight minutes left and um, I'm We'll see if there's if anyone has any comments or questions, please type them in for us. And and can you would you mind translating this one for us too, Jess? It would be great. Emmanuel, Escuca Crean Creole. I'm not actually great in French. My Creole's much better. <laughs> Maybe Alicia wants to translate this one. No, this is uh Jess would even be better than I am at this. You yeah. know that I Let's am see. in here moment. Translate some of it. It says um He's, a, he's like, you're passing a very somber moment in the history of Haiti right now. 
the country is entering into gangsterization. Um, don't know that word. <laughs> um, do you know that? I think what he's saying is that there's only one option for protection. Yeah, I think that's what he's saying. Um, he's saying I'm, I agree with you that the youth constitute the future of the country. But right now, yeah. <laughs> this is, I like this joint effort. <laughs> <laughs> but no, right now, it is um, despois, what, what is that word? Desperation and fear, total fear in the country for the youth. And then we missed the last sentence, but with the, of, of what he's saying. Personally, has uh, uh, up, up. Uh, to flee. Thank you, Tammy, for coming in at the last minute. <laughs> to flee the country is no longer an option, but a means to protect oneself. Thank I you mean, for that translation for us, Tammy. Yeah, this <laughs> no, this is this is constantly. I mean, the people that are here, I've heard. I mean, are the ones that do not have the means to leave. Everyone is trying to, and it's 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 not people that want to. I've heard people say, I wanted to study and I want to serve my country, but I, I can't right now. I have to go. It isn't really an option to stay. Well, I am so, so thrilled to have learned so much more about Haiti and to have connected with you and brought your message to all the Harmony Voices um, people. I know this will be seen a lot. Um, Alicia, do you want to share some more here we just have like five minutes i know um <laughs> <You're writing in Creole. laughs> it was a collective uh emmanuel yeah sorry jess i threw you under the bus with that because i told him that you you uh your french was as good as your creole um yeah, i'm working on it <laughs> when I have free time. <laughs> um, you know, I, I keep listening over and over again. I'm hearing your comment. I'm going to paraphrase that, you know, the health of the soil is, uh, is basically that reflection of the health of a society. And um, there is so much work that we have to do in, in taking care of Mother Earth and in the process of doing that, taking care of ourselves um we clearly there's some kind of disconnect when it comes to certain countries like haiti and uh, i think it is a reflection of an anger and a how dare you free yourself how dare you take that kind of action and take control of your personal being um and so your words your love letter to haiti and the there's just so much power and beauty in what you had to share today. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. I really appreciate you giving me the space to share. And, you know, it's also a reminder when we, when we work together, we rise together. And that is a big key. That's a big component to this collective healing. Yeah. We are not, no one is healed. No one is whole until we all are. 
Yeah, Jess, thank you for sharing that. Can Where can we see that in the future? Could we maybe post a link to wherever it will be published in this in the show notes? Um, as soon as it's published, I'll share the link with um, Alicia. That would be great. That works. Yes, yes, I know people will want to read it after after this. So thank you so much. And it was beautiful. There's, it's so incredible to bring in the beauty, isn't it? In even in such difficult times, I mean, we still have to have that aspect. And in this case, it was the beauty of your words and the wisdom of your words. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I want to thank Emmanuel for jumping in periodically. And then I want to thank Tammy for, uh, for saving us in a translation. Ah, yes. Always good to be here. And thank you, Jessica. Yes. Um, for those of you who, who are not sure or you think, oh, Tamara Kantav's name is familiar. Tammy is, um, she's my partner in crime. She's the reason why her many voices has uh, started in Haiti to begin with. Um, she is from Haiti originally. And uh, at some point in their history, her father was the Minister of Agriculture of Haiti. Um, so I, I, uh, I have tremendous gratitude for our connection. And she, at this point, also sits uh, on our board as well. Uh, Great. Thank you so much. I think that sounds like that's it. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Tammy, for all your work, for how many voices as well. <laughs> and um, this was really, really beautiful and powerful. And thank you so much, you guys. Thanks, Jessica, for joining us. Thank you for the healing tears this morning, Jess. Thank you. <laughs> and Alicia, what a pleasure to have you with us the whole time. Wow. Thank you. Thanks. I couldn't, you know, I mean, you got Jess here. I love Jess. Mm -hmm. I adore this woman. So and, uh, yeah. So I just wanted to make sure I was here for this. Yeah. Thank you both. Much love to both. Thank you, ladies. Thank you.